Well, have you ever heard the Sheryl Crow song? I tried to practice this song. It's not going to sound good, but I'm going to sing it to you anyway. Um, uh, this song, you probably know, it goes, If it makes you happy, it can't be that bad. If it makes you happy, then why the heck are you so sad? Now, maybe you know that song. Please don't applaud. I need help. Um, uh, <laughs> um, what I like, the interesting thing about this song is it's filled with irony, isn't it? Because that's what most people think. If it makes you happy, it can't be that bad. It can't be that bad. But in reality, when we give ourselves over to our sinful desires, thinking it will make us happy, it ultimately ends up making us feel so sad. <laughs> ultimately ends up feeling so sad. Because we become slaves to our sinful desires, always wanting more, and we're never satisfied. Because sin doesn't satisfy, does it? And never does. The problem is, even as Christians, many of us buy into the lie that indulging our sinful desires is true freedom. And that's what the TV sells us, that's what the world says. It says, freedom is doing what you want, when you want. But this couldn't be further from the truth. <laughs> it's an absolute lie. You see, starting with a more extreme example, committing adultery won't enrich your marriage, it will damage or destroy it. Even though some columnists in newspapers will say, have a bit of adultery, it'll liven up your marriage. Rubbish. What about constantly chasing after more money and more things? Why do we do that? Well, it won't make you happier. It'll just leave you unsatisfied wanting more, wanting the latest thing. And there's always something new, isn't it? When I was in Japan, uh, there was a, a whole city that the shelf life of their technology lasted for six weeks and then it was obsolete. There's always something new and we want more. Living with your partner before you get married won't give you a better chance of a lasting relationship. No, statistically speaking, you have a much higher chance of getting divorced. Losing your temper or letting loose with your words doesn't finally satisfy. It only ends up hurting you and others, doesn't it? See, we could go on and on with this list. The point is, giving ourselves over to our sinful desires makes us slaves to our sin and is ultimately destructive and doesn't lead to lasting happiness. That's why... The richest people in the world and all these famous people are often not happy and in rehab <laughs> because the world doesn't answer. So as Christians then, how do we overcome our sinful passions? Well, in a word, we need self-control. Self-control. Now, that's a simple word, but what is self-control really? What is self-control? Well, there's a little definition up there for you. Christian self-control involves both controlling our behavior and the impulses and emotions inside us. Now, how does that make that any different from someone who's not a Christian? That sounds similar to what a definition would be for a non-Christian. Well, the difference is this, and very importantly, self-control for a Christian doesn't come from our own strength, but from Christ's power. It doesn't come from our own strength, but from Christ's power. You see, Christian self-control is not finally about bringing our sinful passions under our own control, but under the control of Christ by the power of His Holy Spirit. And we're going to explore how we can exercise such spirit-controlled self-control or spirit-empowered self-control in our message today. Now, if we go right back to the very beginning, we see our struggle with temptation, sin, and self-control right back with who? With Adam and Eve. With Adam and Eve. And, and they carried it on to their children. See, and who were their children? Cain and Abel. Listen to God's response to Cain. When Cain is angry and envious of his brother's faithful offering to the Lord, so he's jealous, have a listen to what God says to him. It's very insightful. Then the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? 
Why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must rule over it. Now, what's absolutely clear here is you and I must exercise self-control over our sinful desires. We must master them rather than them mastering us. Of course, that's much easier said than done, isn't it? It's easy for me to say that. It's much harder to do. And in Cain's case, he failed. He he gave into his sinful desires and he murdered his brother. But are we so much better? We all have the same sinful heart condition as Cain, don't we? We all too easily give into our sinful desires rather than doing the right thing, often. Which begs the most important question today. How on earth do we master sin? How can we exercise self-control over our sinful passions? Now, it might be as simple as saying no to another chocky bicky when you're on a diet. Uh, and my wife's on a no chocolate diet at the moment. I must commend her. She's doing outstandingly well. Even when I had Toblerone the other day, she said, move the Toblerone, honey. I said, no worries. Mm. <laughs> I didn't do that to her. All right. Or it might be saying no to Netflix or Facebook late at night <laughs> when we got to go to work the next day. Or it might be as significant as saying yes to being sober. Yes to being sexually pure. Yes to staying away from the pokies. Whatever it is, how do we exercise self-control over our passions and desires? Well, the first clear step is self-control grows through self-discipline. Self-control grows through self-discipline. Now, just like our muscles grow when we discipline ourselves to regularly go to the gym and work our muscles out, uh, and sometimes people keep doing it until they look like they've got bulges all over themselves, so too self-control grows through self-discipline. Now, this is certainly true of life, isn't it? I know that I only became a faster, stronger, better cyclist when I committed to a training regime that included careful what I ate, monitoring my heart rate, regular specific forms of training, listening to expert advice, riding with a partner so I was accountable, improving my skills through racing. All these things made me a stronger cyclist. Now, it might not be cycling for you. It might be losing weight or studying for an exam or overcoming a bad habit or taming your tongue. Whatever it is, self-control and the success that goes with it grows through committed, ongoing self-discipline. It doesn't happen overnight, like that old ad says, but it will happen. So it happens through self-discipline. Now, the Apostle Paul spells this out for us. Using the example of athletic games, quite possibly the Isthmian games, which he would have been there for in 51 AD. So he talks about athletics, and he says, to become self-controlled requires you to be determined and single-minded. Determined and single-minded. This is how he puts it. Don't you realize that in a race, everyone runs, but only one person gets the prize, so run to win. Now, when I was racing with cycling, I never raced to come second. What's the point of that? You race to win, (laughs) right? You race to win. In other words, what Paul's talking about here is as a Christian, you should run to win. You're not running for second place. You're running for the prize of salvation and eternal life. So run with complete determination and single-eyed focus on your goal. 
Now, of course, our goal is ultimately eternal life, but along the way, that may include overcoming a sinful habit or achieving greater success in your spiritual life. It requires self-discipline to keep such focus, doesn't it? But what else does such self-discipline look like? Well, Paul goes on to say it requires ongoing and committed self-control. Ongoing and committed self-control. Paul puts it this way. All athletes are disciplined in their training. They do it to win a prize that will fade away, but we do it for an eternal prize. Now, to be an elite athlete demands strict diet, ongoing discipline training, organized time for sleep and recovery, and abstaining from the party lifestyle, alcohol, drugs, all that sort of stuff. Now, if an athlete does that, they can succeed. But if they don't, if they neglect those things, how are they going to win? They're not going to win because they're committing against other athletes who are maybe twice as committed to their training. But the same is true for us. If we want to live in victory over our sinful desires and habits, if we want to gain our eternal prize, then that requires a plan, making good choices, and an ongoing commitment to succeed. An ongoing commitment to succeed. It's not like one of those diets where you do it for a month and then, oh, but I really do prefer burgers and chocolate. It's an ongoing commitment. Now, that may mean, first of all, positive abstinence. Positive abstinence. For example, it might mean avoiding certain places or situations if you want to succeed. So if you're an alcoholic, you avoid lunch at the pub. If you're on a diet, you don't go to Macca's. You bring a packed lunch. <laughs> if you're tempted to gamble, you stay away from the club. <laughs> if you're struggling with porn, you stay away from your screen when you're tired or late at night. If you feel like you just need more stuff, more things, the latest thing, maybe avoid the shopping center and go for a walk instead. <laughs> the point is, you get it. <laughs> that may also mean positive inclusions. Positive abstinence, positive inclusions. Positive inclusions like, and really importantly, choosing someone that you can be accountable to and speaking regularly with them. Accountability partner is someone that's living victory in victory in the habit you're struggling with or the habits you're struggling with. You don't choose an accountability partner that's completely hopeless in that area because they're not going to help you. Someone that is living in victory with it. And then you meet with them or speak to them on the phone. And that's incredibly helpful. Uh, a really obvious thing too, which I found as a parent is significantly important, is getting enough sleep. <laughs> in fact, I think 90% of our time, our problem with temptation is because we just are so tired. And how many people have I spoken to recently, and you may resonate with this, is I say, how are you going there? I'm tired. I'm just so tired. Now, you know, that's lifestyle choices and different things, but maybe we need to make changes so we're not so exhausted that we're constantly living on the edge and therefore struggling with temptation and self-control. Another obvious thing is investing your time in healthy habits that strengthen your spiritual resolve, like reading or listening to God's Word. I really like listening to the YouVersion Bible and play it on my, in my car when I'm driving or listening to sermons or uplifting music or worshipping in your car. So what if the person next to you, you're driving, you're like, yeah, praise the Lord. You know, and the person's like, what the heck are they doing? They're kind of weird. What's going on there? doesn't matter. Praise the Lord. It's great to worship God. Or, or maybe in nature. I love going on a bushwalk or going for a ride in nature or something in nature because it helps me worship God. It makes me reflect on His goodness. Spending time in fellowship with others, spending time with your wife and kids, enjoying regular exercise, planned days off. All these inclusions and abstinences, when committed to and practiced ongoingly, will help you gain self-control and victory. Will help you gain self-control and victory. Now, thirdly, Paul says, to become self-controlled, you must avoid aimless living. You must avoid 
aimless living. Paul puts it this way. Therefore, I do not run like someone running aimlessly. I do not fight like a boxer beating the air. Now, what Paul is essentially saying is this. Have you ever, have you ever seen a drunk try and run? Have you ever seen it? I've, I've seen it. And this is how it looks like. <laughs> Maybe when I was a teenager. I, not now, not for, not for many, many years. <laughs> oh, it must have been the uh, red cordial I had, Jill. Um, well, <laughs> thanks so much for that wonderful comment. Um, Paul is saying this. He's saying, don't get distracted and get off track. Have a plan and stick to it. Know where you're heading and how to get there. Otherwise, you will fail. Of course you'll fail if you run aimlessly. John Piper says it this way, and I like how he says it. The path that leads to heaven is narrow and strewn with suicidal temptations to abandon the way. Let me read that again. The path that leads to heaven is narrow and strewn with suicidal temptations to abandon the way. So let's be focused on where we're going. Finally, to become self-controlled, Paul states this. Discipline your mind and body. Discipline your mind and body. He says it this way. I discipline my body like an athlete, training it to do what it should. Otherwise, I fear that after preaching to others, I myself might be disqualified. Now, Paul is pre-warning us to realize the reality and power of temptation. We would be foolish to think there's no power in temptation. There is. So just like the athlete, we must say no to ourselves and no to the seductive lure of sin, because sin promises so much, but it never delivers. We must discipline our mind and our bodies to do what is right so we don't stumble and fall in our faith, so we won't become slaves to our sin again and risk disqualification from our eternal prize if we continue to go that way. And Paul himself says, I don't want to be disqualified. He takes it seriously. And to this, let me give you some simple steps that might help you win the battle for your mind and as a result, your actions. Here's 10 simple steps. You're welcome to take a screenshot of it, take a photo if you want, because I found this helpful myself and I've shared it with others as well. It's called building an off-ramp. Building an off-ramp or overcoming ants. Automatic negative thoughts. Now, we all have automatic negative thoughts, don't we? We have all sorts of thoughts that fill our mind and they're not always helpful. Now, here are the steps. Now, this particularly is helpful with unhealthy habits. The first one is disturb the ant, a rubber band. What am I talking about there? Now, you might be an alcoholic, you might struggle with gambling or porn or gossip or whatever it is, it doesn't matter. They talk about having a rubber band. Now, what's that about? When, when you have those negative thoughts, those unhelpful thoughts that can lead to unhealthy actions, you, f you pull the rubber band and flick yourself with the rubber band, okay? Now, that might sound a bit masochistic, but there's actually biological reasoning for it. And that is that when we attempted to do these wrong things, right, it, it, it appeals to a pleasure center in our brain. Um, so perhaps a gambler, when they go to the pokies, they feel the excitement and the rush of that. And so uh, when they think of these things, uh, it, it creates a pleasure response. When you have that thought, you flip the rubber band and it creates pain. And, and doctors tell us that over a month, if you keep doing this, it actually tells your brain when you have these thoughts, this is not a pleasurable experience, it causes pain. So biologically, you retrain your body 
to say, this doesn't make me happy, this hurts. And actually, interesting, I was watching a research by a doctor on this, he was saying that the, two, that the top two things that those who were in rehabil rehabilitation for sexual um, addictions, he was saying that the top two things that they said that helped them overcome their addiction was one, the, su uh, the support of a supportive partner, and two, the rubber band, and two, the rubber band. So, disturb the ant, rubber band. So if everyone wears a rubber band next week, praise the Lord, that's good. All right. The second one is confront your ant, speak to it. So that's rubbish, that's a lie, that won't make me happy. This will be the consequences if I do this, which is at least guilt. The next one is stamp on it, take it the next step. I will not do that, I will have nothing to do with that, absolutely not. Four, deliberately speak the new thought. That new thought might be, instead of gambling, I'm going to go for a walk. Or that new thought is, I want to give God honour, or I want to give my wife a ring, or whatever it is. Speak the new thought. Now, act on that new thought. Do that. Reinforce it with an action, song, prayer, confirming statement. Now, this is really helpful. So instead of meditating on that negative thought, you meditate maybe on some scripture like, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Resist the devil and he'll free from me. If God is for me, who can be against me? Whatever scriptural verses that will help you to meditate on the right thing to do and God's power to help you, then the wrong thing to do. Or it might be a confirming statement. I, uh, you know, uh, I'm, going to, um, I'm going to go for a ride instead of whatever it might be. It might be a prayer, it might be an action, but the point is reinforce it. Then it is refuse to act on your negative emotions. Now the thing is you can retrain your brain with the thinking, but then our emotions still try and give us hassle, right? So when those emotions come, you choose not to entertain them. Instead, you build an off-ramp to something else that will satisfy you. So you might build an off-ramp by listening to the worship music that picks up your heart and gives you joy, or ringing a friend, or going for a run, it doesn't really matter. Something instead of, so in other words, affirming your emotions in a healthy way in a positive way rather than a negative way. Then eight, repeat every ant, every time an ant surfaces and nine, maintain your accountability. Now this is really helpful for any negative habit that we have. It couldn't be, it could be gossip, it could be anything. Now friends, if we make all these things a habit, you will grow in self-control and therefore victory. You'll grow in self-control and therefore victory. But here is one last essential step in exercising self-control over our passions and desires. And that is, self-control comes through Christ's power. Self-control comes through Christ's power. Now get this, Christian self-control is not just saying, no, I won't do it, no, I won't do it. In fact, sometimes if we do too much of the no, 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 it just reinforces the problem because you're like fighting so hard that all you're thinking about is what? The problem, the temptation. Maybe we just stop saying no and say yes to the right thing. See, it's not just saying no. You say no in a certain way. You say no through faith in Christ's power that works within you, knowing that he gives you the power to overcome. No in faith that Christ will work in you with his power. And saying no by remembering the greater pleasure that you find in Christ. So the greater joy, the greater peace, the greater goodness and hope and satisfaction you find in Christ. Because you know that if you're given to temptation... If you lack that self-control, it always ends up in guilt, doesn't it? But when we say yes to Jesus, remembering uh, when we honour him, what happens? We have greater peace and greater joy. So we say yes to the greater pleasure in Christ instead of focusing on the sin that actually steals our joy. Now, your no to sinful desires might well be ruthless. Sometimes we have to be very ruthless uh, and possibly just as painful. 
But the difference between worldly self-control and godly self-control is this. Who will get the glory for the victory? Will you get the glory or will Christ get the glory? If we exercise self-control by faith in Christ's power and by remembering the pleasure we find in him, Christ will get the glory and we will get the victory. Let me say that again. If we exercise self-control by faith in Christ's power and by remembering the pleasure we find in him, Christ will get the glory and we will get the victory. Now, the Bible makes it clear that self-control is a gift. It is the fruit of the Holy Spirit. As Paul says, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, etc., etc., and self-control. Now, since self-control is a gift of the Spirit then, how do we strive against our sinful desires? Well, Paul answers that clearly saying this. For this I toil, for this I work hard, struggling or agonizing with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. Now get this. How is he struggling? Is he struggling in his own energy? No. How does he struggle? He struggles with all Christ's energy that he powerfully works in me. Now that's quite different, isn't it? In other words, we see Paul relies on Christ's power, not his own. And he goes on to say it's through the Spirit's power or Christ's power that you overcome the sinful desires within you. Listen to this. But if through the power of the Spirit you put to death the deeds of your sinful nature, you will live. How do we put to death the deeds of the sinful nature? By us trying really hard? No. By the power of the Spirit. By relying on God's power, by faith, trusting in Him, trusting in His promises, stepping out in faith, believing He has given me the power. And also filling myself with spiritual strength by regularly spending time with Him, being connected to Him. If I'm not closely connected to Jesus, I'm going to struggle with this because I need His power. And if the connection's not great, then I'm going to struggle. When we're connected well, relying on His power, we can live in remarkable victory. So understand this. The Spirit God gave us does not make us timid, but gives us power Love and self-discipline. So how does the Spirit produce this fruit of self-control in us? By God's grace. And that's really what it comes back to in the end. We need God's grace because God's grace teaches us to say no to our sinful passions. And Paul puts it this way. For the grace of God that appeared teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. What, what he's trying to say is this. When we really understand and believe the magnitude of God's grace, how good it is, how wonderful, wonderful it is for us in Jesus, the power of our wrong desires is broken. What, I, what I'm trying to say is this. is When we realize how great his grace is, and we fall in love with him because we're like, man, God is so gracious to me, even though I suck and I stuff up all the time, and all this, and when I realize how massive his grace, I'm like, that's awesome and that makes me fall in love with Jesus because he's so good that breaks the power of wrong desires because I love him and I want to honor him it doesn't become a chore but it becomes a response to my relationship with him grace teaches us to do the right thing and we're empowered to do it by his spirit so let's bring this all together then if you struggle with self-control which I think is everyone on the planet <laughs> Then the scriptures tell us this. You can become self-controlled through spirit-empowered self-discipline. You can become self-controlled through spirit-empowered self-discipline. Now we're going to pray in, in just one moment. But I want to leave you with a word of encouragement from God's word that says this. And this is encouraging. 
No temptation has overtaken you except what is common to mankind. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can endure it. God's got our backs, my friends. We just need to rely on him. Let's pray.